You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 137, Lambert Wicks brings the war to Britain. Last week, I talked about Benjamin Franklin coming to Paris and his efforts to bring France into the war with Britain. Diplomacy and talk were not Franklin's only tools. Franklin and his fellow diplomats attempted to bring the war directly to Britain, or at least just offshore in the waters around Britain. Franklin had crossed the Atlantic Ocean on an American warship, the Reprisal, captained by Lambert Wicks. Captain Wicks had been a merchant ship captain in Maryland before the war. His first notoriety came when he refused to deliver tea to Baltimore during the disputes between the colonies and Britain that eventually led to the Boston Tea Party. Wicks joined the Continental Navy in the spring of 1776 after Commodore Isaac Hopkins had already made his raid on the Bahamas and gotten his fleet trapped in Rhode Island. Wicks commanded a newly converted ship, the Reprisal, which had been one of Robert Morris's merchant vessels. The new 18-gun Navy ship had a crew of about 130 men. Like most Continental ships, it was large enough and well-armed enough to capture any merchant vessel, but no match for a British ship of the line. After patrolling in and around the Delaware River waters protecting Philadelphia, Wicks and the crew of the Reprisal saw their first action when the ship fought along with Captain John Barry and the Lexington against British warships in the Battle of Turtle Gut Inlet, a fight I discussed back in episode 94. Wicks' brother, Lieutenant Richard Wicks, was killed in that battle. Sometime after that battle, Congress tasked Wicks to deliver a VIP, William Bingham, to Martinique, where Bingham was to serve as an American agent for Congress on the French colony. Bingham is someone I've failed to mention so far, He came from a Philadelphia merchant family and began school at the College of Philadelphia, what we today call the University of Pennsylvania, at age 13 and graduated at age 16. His father died the following year, and Bingham took over his trading business. He obviously had good political connections because in 1770, at age 18, the ministry in London appointed Bingham consul to Martinique, a French colony in the West Indies. Despite his appointment, Bingham remained in Philadelphia, completing his master's degree. I'm not sure what his duties were with the consulship, but if he even visited Martinique, he did not stay there very long. In 1773, he took an extended trip to Europe and then returned to Philadelphia. With the outbreak of war, Bingham stood with the Patriots and resigned his consulship. Congress's secret committee called on Bingham to go to Martinique 
and do what he could to help the cause. Bingham's status in the French colony of Martinique was essentially the same as Silas Dean's was in France. His cover was that he was a private businessman. His secret orders from Congress were to do whatever he could to get French military supplies to America, to collect any useful intelligence, sponsor privateers to attack British shipping, and do whatever else he could to provoke tensions between France and Britain. Since the colonies were not watched as closely as France itself, Martinique became a key depot for the Americans. France could ship all sorts of military supplies across the Atlantic to its own colony. If local officials then mistakenly sold some of that and it got shipped to America, well, that was just some bureaucratic mistake. I didn't really mean to get onto a tangent about William Bingham, but he does play a key role in the arms trade between France and America. So anyway, Lambert Wicks had to get Bingham to Martinique. On July 3, 1776, the reprisal left Philadelphia with Bingham aboard. As the ship traveled to the West Indies, it encountered three different British merchant vessels carrying trade goods. Each time the reprisal captured a ship, Captain Wicks had to dispatch a prize crew to take control of the ship. The prize crew would sail it back to a friendly port in America so that the ship and its cargo could be sold. After sending off three prize crews, Wicks' own crew was getting rather short on manpower. Now, some of the crew from the captured ships had agreed to join his crew, but he was not sure how far he could trust those men, especially if they made up the bulk of his crew. When the reprisal caught a fourth ship, Captain Wicks was reluctant to give up any more of his crew and could not take the ship with them. He said that since they were an Irish ship, they were not a legitimate target and he would allow them to go on their way. Now, Wicks would have no problems capturing Irish ships the following year. The point of this excuse was to release the ship without revealing the weakness of the crew. The captured crew was happy not to ask too many questions. They were not going to argue that they really were British and should be taken prisoner and have their property stolen. They were happy to go on their way. On July 27th, as the reprisal entered Saint-Pierre Harbor in Martinique, it found the British ship HMS Shark already there delivering a protest from British Admiral James Young. Wicks put Bingham in a rowboat so that he could get safely to shore. Then he engaged the Shark in a short firefight. The British broke up the fight by firing a few shots from their shore batteries, but not before the reprisal had damaged the Shark. The shark left the harbor, only to return the next day with yet another complaint from Admiral Young. After the battle, Wicks received compliments and congratulations from the locals. The French authorities were equally friendly, allowing Wicks to put his ship in dock for cleaning and allowing Bingham to take up residence and begin granting letters of marque to any privateers willing to attack British shipping. Martinique officials had no problems letting privateers attack British shipping and return to French ports for protection and disposal of captured prizes. Over the next few weeks, the Americans hauled in quite a number of British prizes. Wicks returned to Philadelphia in September, loaded with gunpowder and other supplies, and received commendations from Congress. Shortly after his return, 
Congress formalized the seniority list for its Navy captains. Wick's recent exploits helped his standing. On October 10th, Congress established the seniority of its top 24 captains. Wick's ranked number 11. Just like seniority among Army generals, seniority for Navy captains was a contentious and political issue. These captains had already been serving for many months, and rearranging seniority upset many. The most senior captain was James Nicholson. You all remember the famous Captain Nicholson, right? Of course not. He had a very undistinguished career. Some might even call it embarrassing. John Barry, who I mentioned and who did have quite a career, was number seven on the list. John Paul Jones was number 18. I've included a link to the full list of 24 captains on the ranking on my blog if you want to take a look. Also in October, the Secret Committee tasked Wicks with delivering another VIP. He would carry Benjamin Franklin to France. As I discussed last week, Franklin was traveling to take up his role as commissioner to France. At this time, Franklin was probably the most well-known man in America. Getting him and his grandsons safely past the British Navy was a top priority. Congress ordered Wicks not to go looking for prizes and to get Franklin to Nantes as quickly as possible. If he came across a prize and Franklin approved, he could capture it. But once Franklin was ashore, Wickies would be free to harass shipping in the English Channel and hopefully dispose of his prizes in French ports. All money from such prizes would support the new delegation in Europe. Congress appointed Thomas Morris, brother of Pennsylvania Delegate Robert Morris, to serve as agent for all prizes. Thomas Morris was already in Europe. Franklin attempted to slip out of Philadelphia as quietly as he could to avoid tipping off the British that he would be at sea. He and his grandsons boarded the reprisal at Marcus Hook, many miles downstream from Philadelphia. The ship managed to sail out to open sea without encountering any British warships that regularly sailed around the mouth of the Delaware. The trip across the ocean was relatively uneventful. As the ship got closer to France, it encountered a merchant ship. With Franklin's permission, Wiki seized the unarmed ship and forced the surprise crew of the George to surrender. He put aboard a prize crew and continued with both ships toward the French coast. A few hours later, the Levine also came within range and was taken without a fight. The next day, November 28th, they sighted the French coast. Poor winds prevented them from reaching Nantes, though. For the next four days, contrary winds prevented the reprisal from reaching any destination. Finally, the frustrated and seasick Franklin got Wicks to pay a local fishing vessel to bring Franklin and his two grandsons ashore. From there, they could find their way overland to Nantes and then on to Paris. With Franklin safely ashore, Wicks still had plenty of other worries. He needed to get the reprisal and his prize ships safely to port. He still also had most of Franklin's luggage. He had to sell the prizes and the indigo that he brought in his own hold to fund the new American commissioners. He also had the crews of the prize ships aboard. Due to contrary winds, it would take Wickies another few weeks to reach the port of Nantes in late December. Normally, a naval vessel would return to a friendly port where a prize court could value the captured vessels and permit their sale. 
a portion of the prize money would be distributed to the crew. The crews of the captured vessels could be held as prisoners of war. Now, none of that was possible in France. The French government was bound by the Treaty of Utrecht. That 1713 treaty had ended the War of Spanish Succession. Now, even though the treaty had been blown up twice by the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War, both France and Britain still declared themselves bound by its trade provisions. Among them was an understanding that neither country would give safe harbor to any enemy warships. Now, I know what you're thinking. Finally, we can get into an extended legal analysis of the Treaty of Utrecht and its application on 18th century maritime law. Unfortunately, I don't have time for all that, but I have recommended a few books on my blog if you want to read more about it. Suffice it to say that unless France wanted war with Britain, which it did not, it had to arrest Wicks and return the prize ships to their British owners. Now recall that in Martinique, Wicks's experience with the French governor was that they could do pretty much whatever they wanted, since France was at least tacitly supporting the American cause. In France, though, the government could not get away with playing fast and loose with those treaties. British Ambassador Lord Stormont, who I discussed last week, would regularly threaten war if the French supported ships in open warfare with British shipping. French officials would spend the next couple of years playing a fine line of assisting American ships as much as possible, while avoiding a blatant and direct treaty violation that could lead to war with Britain. That whole dance really got its start when the reprisal arrived in Nantes. Wicks delivered Franklin's luggage and the indigo to a French agent for the American commissioners. A short time later, the two prize vessels appeared with different names written on them and with new French owners. Wicks had sold the ships and cargo on the sly to new French owners who bought them at a massive discount. In doing so, they agreed to assume all risk for any possible legal claims. I could not find the purchase prices for these deals, but later ones were estimated to be sold at only about 15% of actual market value. French merchants who had property aboard the prize ships complained to Lord Stormont. Stormont, of course, immediately went to see Vergen at Versailles to complain. Foreign Minister Vergen said he knew nothing about the matter, but he would look into it. There was no real investigation, since the ships had different names written on them now and had new forged documentation of ownership. French officials determined that these really must be different ships and that the British must be confused. Now, everyone knew this was BS, but neither Britain nor France wanted to press the issue to the point where it led to war. In the meantime, the Loire River froze, locking in the reprisal. Wick spent a few weeks on land dealing with other matters, including attempts to buy new warships. He also inspected one of the warships that had attempted to bring supplies to America a few months earlier. I mentioned this back in episode 115, and implied that it had returned to port because the French officer, Ducaudray, was being a bit of a wuss about his food and his quarters. Ducaudray feared just such criticism and asked Captain Wicks to look at the ship. It turns out Beaumarchais had thrown it together in a hurry, knowing that an order to seize the ship was on its way. Ducaudray showed Wicks that the ship had only about one quarter of the food needed for the voyage, 
that none of the officers were familiar with American ports and that the ship itself was not seaworthy due to the way the cargo had been loaded in haste. Wicks concluded that it was in fact appropriate to turn back. It just goes to show that there is always more than one side to every story. Wicks' stay in France could not last long, though. The Treaty of Utrecht barred enemy warships from using ports, except in cases of extreme emergency, when they could only stay for 24 hours. Lord Stormont again complained to Vergen, who again was just shocked by this new information and ordered the reprisal to leave France and not return. Of course, it took a while for those orders to get delivered. Besides, the reprisal was incapable of leaving until the river thawed. In late January, the reprisal sailed to the open sea. Despite official pronouncements from Versailles, Franklin had written Wicks to assure him that French and Spanish ports would be open to his return. The French just wanted to keep it quiet and have plausible deniability. The Americans, though, did not even want that. In addition to disrupting commercial shipping, a secret goal of the American delegation in France was to provoke a war between Britain and France. Although Britain and France, as I said, hoped to avoid war, America definitely wanted to see that war begin. Over the next few days, the reprisal captured three more merchant ships. In each case, Wicks brought the officers aboard as prisoners, then sent a prize crew to take the ships back to France for sale. A short time later, he found what he had hoped would be his real target, the Lisbon packet. This was not a private merchant ship. This was the King's ship, manned by the British Navy and armed, albeit rather lightly. After a 45-minute battle, the crew of the reprisal stormed the ship, which was named the Swallow, and took its crew prisoner. With this prize, Wicks headed back to France. Along the way, another merchant ship came too close and fell prey as well. Wicks took his five prize ships to Port Louis in France. There, he claimed that the five ships were his and that he was just putting ashore for some repairs. Everyone knew this was a lie, but the French policy of willful ignorance was in play here. Wicks also still had the captains of the five ships aboard his ship as prisoners. He agreed to release them on parole, on their honor not to escape or reveal to anyone that the reprisal had captured their ships. He did give them permission to lodge protests with the port intendant, but only because he knew those protests would be ignored. Wicks tried to arrange for the secret sales of his prizes and to figure out what to do with the captured crews. Britain was holding a number of American privateers in British prisons. The commissioners hoped to arrange for prisoner exchanges. Franklin sent a letter to Lord Stormont suggesting just such an exchange. Stormont, however, took a different approach. He sent back the letter with a note saying that he would not engage in communications with rebels unless they were ready to beg for the king's mercy. He launched more protests at Versailles about the captured British ships. Wicks unloaded the ships to American agent Thomas Morris for sale. The French port intendant, now feeling pressure to act, ordered the reprisal to leave port within 24 hours. He said nothing about the private merchant ships. That was just under investigation. Wicks was not ready to leave port. Instead, he pumped water into his hold and then brought aboard ship inspectors to certify that the ship was taking on water and needed repairs before it could leave port. 
he ended up delaying his departure for weeks. Meanwhile, in Versailles, Lord Stormont was livid, protesting these continued violations. Vergen first denied everything. He said the reprisal had been ordered to leave port long ago, that there had been no sale of the prize ships, and that French officials were still investigating the matter. Vergen could not discuss the matter with King Louis until he got all the facts. Wicks had arrived with his prizes in early February. In mid-March, Stormont was still complaining for action. It took until May 22nd before the French ministry finally released its report. The reprisal had stayed in port longer than allowed due to damage of the ship and the incompetence of local officials to enforce the order to depart. They could find no records of the prize ships. Sure, there were records of five other ships sold around that time that seemed remarkably similar to the prize ships, but each of those ships had different names and were painted a different color and had papers saying that they were different ships, so those could not be the prizes that everyone was looking for. Meanwhile, Wicks was not done. He prepared for another voyage. This time he added two more ships to sail along with the reprisal. The Lexington had recently arrived in France. This was the same ship commanded by John Barry that Wicks and the reprisal had fought with at Turtle Gut Inlet. Captain Barry had since moved on to a larger ship, and Captain Henry Johnson now commanded the Lexington. Rounding out the fleet was another ship called the Dolphin, under the command of Lieutenant Samuel Nicholson. Captain Wick's half-brother, Joseph Hinson, actually purchased the Dolphin, at the time called the Rochefort, in Liverpool. Hinson is a fascinating story himself. He turned out to be a double agent working for the British. Maybe I can get into his story in another episode, but in any event, he got the Dolphin to France, where it became the third ship in Wick's fleet which set out from France on May 28, 1777. Even getting the fleet started was a challenge. Most of the crew refused to go until they got their prize money from the previous captures, or for that matter, the prizes captured on the trip to Martinique a year earlier. Wicks came up with some money for the crew, but also had to supplement his crew with French sailors. With the fleet underway, Wicks headed for the Irish Sea. The fleet sailed up the west coast of Ireland and then into the Irish Sea from the north. Over the course of this mission, the American fleet took 18 merchant vessels. They sent most of them back to France, a few sank, and a couple, which were smugglers, were allowed to go on their way. The attacks over the course of the next month created panic in Britain. Insurance rates skyrocketed. Merchants chose to send their merchandise aboard French or other neutral ships. British shipowners found themselves scrambling for business. The Navy deployed ships in search of what they called pirates, but could not seem to find them. As the fleet sailed toward France in late June, it spotted one more large merchant vessel and gave chase. Only this time, the ship turned out not to be a merchant vessel, but the Burford a 74-gun British ship of the line. There was no way the three American ships were even a contest for the Burford. As they realized their mistake and fled, the British warship turned on them. The fleet scattered in three different directions, leaving a prize ship for the British to seize and board. The captain of the Burford did not take the bait. He continued after the largest ship, the Reprisal, letting the others go. 
Aboard the reprisal, Wicks made a dash for the French coast. With the Burford gaining on him, the crew threw over everything it could to lighten the load, including all of their cannon. The Burford got within musket range of the reprisal, but Wickes kept his ship in front, always avoiding giving the British a chance to fire a broadside. After a harrowing 12-hour chase, the reprisal reached the French coast, and the Burford gave up the chase. It took a few weeks for word of the attacks to reach London, and a few more for London to instruct Lord Stormont. By early July, Stormont was threatening war at Versailles over the flagrant treaty violations. France was serving as a base for enemy ships. Stormont told Vergen that if something didn't change, France and Britain really would soon be at war. Vergen was trying to avoid such a war, just as the Americans were trying to start one. Vergen still wanted to help the Americans, but realized the British were near their breaking point. He told Stormont, truthfully, that France had ordered the American fleet to leave in May and not return. Of course, no one believed those instructions. He also said that they had only returned in the first place because they had been attacked by British warships. Vergen now ordered the American ships sequestered, which gave them time to make repairs in the French ports. Vergen also seemed to have a really hard time figuring out what happened to the eight British prize ships that had entered French ports and then suddenly disappeared. Again, there was nothing to return to British authorities except the crews. France had recently arrested another American privateer, Gustavus Cunningham, who the British had termed the Dunkirk Pirate. Now, Cunningham's story is another fascinating one that I really hope to cover in another episode, but we're running really long here today, so I'm not going to get into that. The diplomatic arguing dragged on over the rest of the summer. Meanwhile, Wicks repaired and rearmed his ships. Finally, in September, Wicks received orders from the commissioners to return to America with supplies and important communications for Congress. The British hoped to catch the reprisal after leaving port, but Wicks once again gave them the slip. The reprisal crossed the Atlantic, with Captain Wicks a returning national hero. Sadly, this is where Wicks's story ends. On his return trip off the coast of Newfoundland, the reprisal encountered a massive storm at sea. The ship sank, with all hands lost, except for one person identified only as the ship's cook. Captain Wicks went down with his ship, cutting short the life of one of America's bravest and most talented naval officers. Next week, we're heading south again for the Battle of Thomas Creek in Florida. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. 
Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. A special thanks to Mike Hager, who has been a Robert Morris Circle supporter for several months now. Robert Morris Circle supporters on Patreon believe enough in this podcast to sponsor the show at $50 per month. When I first added that level, I expected it only to be used by people who wanted me to mention some project to my audience. Mike and a few others have been willing to provide sponsorship at that level without asking anything in return. In fact, Mike has gone beyond that and upped his monthly support even beyond the $50 level. I am profoundly humbled and grateful that people like Mike believe enough in this podcast to support it at that level. I also wanted to note this week that History Camp Philadelphia tickets are now on sale. The event takes place on May 2nd, 2020, but we have a fairly small venue for the event this year, and tickets are going fast. So if you want to make sure you get a seat, you better order them soon. Go to historycamp.org for more details. The main episode this week went a little longer than usual. I even had to cut out a fair amount of content to get through it in a reasonable amount of time. In fact, I originally just planned to mention Lambert Wicks as an aside while talking about last week's episode regarding Franklin going to Paris. But the more I read about him, the more I knew he deserved his own episode. I think Wicks easily could have beaten out John Paul Jones as the father of the U.S. Navy if he had not been killed by a storm so early in his career. He was truly an impressive officer. By the way, if I slipped up in the main episode and called him Wickies, please forgive me. I learned rather late that his name was pronounced Wicks, and I kept slipping up and using the wrong pronunciation. I hope I caught and fixed them all, but if not, please forgive me. So this week's book recommendation is the only biography I could find that covers Lambert Wicks's life. It's called Lambert Wicks, Sea Raider and Diplomat, The Story of a Naval Captain of the Revolution, by William Bell Clark. At over 400 pages, this book does a great job covering the life of this forgotten hero of the Revolution. And I'll even overlook the fact that they spelled naval with an E in the title. The author, Clark, was an advertising executive who wrote several books on both the Revolution and naval history. The problem with this book is, good luck getting it. The book was first published in 1932, and it does not appear to have ever been to a reprint. It's almost out of copyright, so I don't expect anyone to republish it now until the copyright expires. I looked on Amazon, and there were only two used copies available, both asking over $100. So, unless you're loaded, you may be out of luck in finding this book. With that said, I'm going to recommend a second book this week as well. I briefly mentioned William Bingham, 
who lived a rather impressive life starting out as a Philadelphia merchant. He went to Martinique as the American commissioner. I really hope I get to talk more about him in a future episode, because he does lead a really fascinating life. He made a fortune in the war by running a fleet of privateer ships. He would later serve as Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, and also as one of the first U.S. Senators from Pennsylvania. The town of Binghamton, New York, is named after him. He never lived there or even visited, but he did own the land when the town was so named. So, my second recommendation this week is The Golden Voyage, The Life and Times of William Bingham, 1752-1804, by Robert C. Alberts. This is another long book, nearly 600 pages, although about 150 of it is appendix, notes, and index. Alberts was also an advertising executive who wrote quite a few history books and was a contributing editor of American Heritage magazine. His book on Bingham was published in 1969. You can read it online on archive.org or pick it up for a much more reasonable price at Amazon or any other place that you can find used books. If you want to learn more about William Bingham, you will want to read Albert's book. But getting back to my Lambert Wiki's recommendation, I noted that the book is hard to find and expensive. I was lucky enough to be able to borrow the book through my library's interlibrary loan system. If your library has one, by all means use it. As a member of the Philadelphia Free Library, the system will hunt down virtually any book from anywhere and lend it out for free, just like one of their own books. I really love this system, and it makes much of my research for the podcast possible. That is why they are my online recommendation of the week. The Philadelphia Interlibrary Loan Program, unfortunately, is only available for people who use the Philadelphia library system. But I thought it worth recommending because your library system probably has something similar. I found that a great many do. They usually don't advertise it much because it is a pain and an expense for them to manage it. But if you want to get hard-to-find books and don't want to break the bank buying them, your local interlibrary loan is probably your best option. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.